if you are a barefoot or minimalist runner, you have probably tried to talk some of your friends into also becoming a barefoot or minimalist runner, and they have probably provided some resistance. On the podcast today, we're going to be talking to someone who might have met more resistance than you will ever hear about, and we'll get into the specifics, but let's dive in on the Movement Movement podcast. In today's episode, I'm Stephen Sashin, your host for the podcast, where we will discover the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy body and strong as well, starting from the feet first. We're going to get rid of the the mythology, the propaganda, sometimes the outright lies that you might have heard about what it takes to walk, to run, to play, to do CrossFit, to do yoga by letting your body move naturally, hence the movement movement. In fact, we're creating a movement movement. We want natural movement to be the obvious better healthy choice the way natural food currently is. And we want you to be part of that community. And so if you want to be part of that community, you know what to do. Go to jointhemovementmovement.com where you'll find all the different places that you can interact with this podcast. And you can like and share and subscribe. And if you're on YouTube, hit that little bell so you hear about upcoming episodes uh, and leave reviews and all those things you know how to do. I don't need to explain it to you. So let's jump in. I am very happy. Today is not one of my normal rant days. Uh, we get to talk to an old friend of mine, Dr. Mark Kukuzela. And Mark, I don't want to even do your intro because I won't do it justice. So do you want to tell people who you are, what you do, where you are right now, and then we'll jump into the whole natural movement story with you. I'm in uh, God's country here, Stephen. The other God's country, you're in Boulder, still in Boulder, so I'm in. Right outside of Boulder where I've got actually, the problem with being in Boulder is you're right up against the foothills, you don't get to see them, so we're right outside, so we have that incredible vista. And away from all the people. So I'm in West Virginia, so we're a town of 3,000 here. It's what maybe Boulder used to be probably before you and I were born. <laughs> so, right. But, like, yeah, I would say uh, my claim to fame is I'm a friend of yours. You remember? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Met, Blah, uh, blah, 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 blah. Ferry out to Governor's Island at the New York City Barefoot Run. It was, That's true, my God. I think that was the first time I met you. We talked on the phone. That was like seven, was that seven years ago? I think Eight. it was more than that. I, I saw a picture that my kids looked about nine years younger than they do now. So it was do you a wanna, while wait, ago. On, do you want to, well, you, you may know this, but I'm going to- 2010 gonna, or 2011, something like it that. Was, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess to something that I did there. So I wanted to be one of the sponsors of the New York City Barefoot Run. It was the first big barefoot run that anyone was- You just had your little do-it-yourself kit then. All we were selling was a do-it-yourself kit and I wanted to be one of the sponsors. And the guy who was putting the event on, who's now a friend of mine, said that I couldn't be because one of our now competitors was already a sponsor and was actually a good friend of his. And so they didn't want me there competing. So I just showed up with a suitcase full of do-it-yourself sandal kits and was just selling them underneath a tree. Yeah, I remember. Then, oh, gosh. Yeah. And then they slapped my wrist. You can't do that. And I just totally feigned innocence. I went, oh, really? Oh, man, I didn't know. I, I totally knew. I was just trying to get in there and do what I could. So I was hustling. That's what I was doing. I was hustling. You're hustling. And I learned about your sprinting days. So I got to learn a little of your backstory. If you've disclosed you're a stand-up comedian, I'm like, how uh, the hell did you get into this feel because your videos at that time that's some funny video i'm the i'm the one interviewing i'm not going to be answering questions about me so, so let's do you on that the hat well actually i'll do the quick, quickest how the quickest how is simple i got back into sprinting i was getting injured someone suggested i try running barefoot by doing that i learned why i was getting injured and how to stop getting injured i wanted to have that natural movement experience as often as i could so i started making sandals based on this 10,000 year design i 10,000 year old design idea and then you remember michael sandler right yes so Michael had a book that was coming out called Barefoot Running, and he said, if you had a website, I would put you in the book. So I rush home, and I pitch this idea to my wife, who tells me it is a stupid idea that won't work. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. So after she went to bed, I built a website, and here we are nine and a half years later, oh, where 
yeah, it's gone from a do-it-yourself sandal kit to a wall full of shoes and sandals that people use for everything from taking a walk to running ultra marathons. And speaking of the wall full of shoes and sandals, uh, wait till you see the new stuff that's coming out for 2020. Uh, and for those of you watching or listening, Mark will have access to this before you do because he's going to be at certain trade shows. But dude, this stuff is super, super amazing. But again, enough about me. So I introduced you as a doctor. What kind of doctor are you? Tell the humans. So my, my day job is taking care of hospital patients in a small rural community hospital or a 24-bed, it's called a critical access hospital serving a rural community. And then I also do a lot of work with type 2 diabetes. In the same way you and I are trying to fix people's feet and get rid of the injuries, I try to fix what they eat. Diabetes isn't really druggable, but it's foodable, so we try to treat them with food. This is type 2, adult type diabetes. Um, type 1 is different, so we have a whole cohort of people here getting rid of sugar, which should be pretty obvious, losing weight and coming off of medication. So it's a little disruptive. I'm going to uh, talk about disruptive. Wait, I'm going to hit you with, th with this question yeah. then that came out of nowhere. So what do you know about and what do you think about the rice diet? And wait, I'm not sure what the rice diet is. If, are we talking just rice as in rice product oh, or just rice oh, stand for something oh, like no, rice? No, no, no. You, you got to look this up. So the rice diet was, and uh, there's a, a woman who Lane and I adore, named Denise, M-I-N-G-E-R. She wrote a book called Death yes. by Food Pyramid. Yes, um, Denise, Denise was the, the bell of the ball in the paleo and low carb community because she was a diehard raw food vegan in her teens and then was having a bunch of problems. And then she- yeah, went, Disaster. Right, she went the, the exact way. other way. And, and then of course was eating just like nothing but meat and everyone loved her. And Denise is a smart science researcher. So she decided to look into- counterfactuals, opposite stories of what people were telling to see if there was any validity to them. And one of the things she looked into was the rice diet. The rice diet was something that was administered. I don't remember the guy's name. He was at Duke University, which is where I went. And, and, the, and he, I'll cut to the end of the story. He was kicked out of this and they stopped really doing the rice diet because this particular diet that I'm about to describe is so difficult to stay on that he was literally like whipping people to keep them on the diet. Now, while I was at Duke. That does not sound like a good idea for my patients. No, no, but wait, but we'll get to the interesting part in a second. While I was there, one of the people who was there to do the rice diet was, was Buddy Hackett, the comedian Buddy Hackett. And he, one day in his big Cadillac, drove over my foot as I was trying to cross a, oh. I was cr going through a crosswalk and he ran the stop sign and ran over my foot. There were Domino's pizza guys who were making $1,000 a night by surreptitiously delivering pizzas to people on the rice diet. But that's not the important part is the rice diet and I might be getting this a little wrong, but the gist is correct. All you eat is white sugar, fruit juice, and white rice. Sounds That's disaster. It. Yes, it sounds that way, but it was the exact opposite. It cured people, literally cured people, like morbidly obese type 2 diabetics, cured them of diabetes, dropped them down into reasonable BMIs. People who went from 400 pounds to 150 pounds kept it off had no problems afterwards. And the fundamental idea is that it was basically forcing your pancreas to go, oh geez, and start working correctly. But it's not, definitely not for everyone, really hard to be on. But her point, the thing that she's, the point that she makes in actually a blog post that she did on her blog, and I don't remember the name, but you'll have to look up Denise to find it, is that she has this theory that what works for human beings when it comes to diet, especially when you need a big intervention for health reasons, is either going extremely low fat or extremely yeah. high fat. And the in-between thing is where we have problems. And I know that you're a low-carb, high-fat dude. Well, no, I, I would actually agree with Denise. And I think it would make sense. So basically, if you did anything to someone who's eating the Western diet, which is two-thirds of it is 
processed oils, vegetable oils, added sugar, and refined flour. So anything you did to detox you for 30 days, 60 days, you could not eat, you could eat meat, you could be a vegan, whatever you did just to get you out of that mess. But then ultimately you got to eat food again. Absolutely. This is the interesting thing that breaks the food. But this is the interesting thing about the rice diet is that they maintain these results even if once they transition back to regular food. And I can tell you something from my experience, just for the fun of it. And again, yeah, they have broken uh, their food addiction. If like when they transition back to real probably, food, probably, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you something fun as a sprinter. I don't know any sprinters who are on low carb diets or any power athletes who no, are on diets. They should be right. Power. Well, I've never heard of one. Never met one. The only time I went super low carb, I called the guy who, who was monitoring me while I did it after a couple of weeks. And I said, hey, dude, I just did something in a workout that I've never done before. He goes, what's that? I said, bailed. I couldn't get off the floor. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Yeah. You would have a very difficult time doing a glycolytic workout. Exactly. But about a year and a half ago, I deliberately went on a very high carb, very low fat diet just because it's closer to what I've been eating my whole life anyway. And I was curious and it had a really surprising side effect. I completely lost my desire slash cravings for sugar. So I used to, yesterday was my birthday. They brought me all these cakes. I've had like slivers because that's just too much, which is really interesting. And I'm not on that diet any longer, but that was a year and a half ago. And it just, something changed in my system from doing that. It was fascinating, mm -hmm. but that's not why we're here. Although that was really fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so eat real food. So the bottom line for those listening, absolutely eat real don't food. Have the junk food and the rest of it, it all sorts itself out but you're someone who's in the, on the more lean insulin sensitive side. So you're a well right. person. When you right. take people who I see are on the six spectrum, they're a little bit different than you metabolize the sugar, Steven. So they have to experiment a little different. They're already so far down the road of, of sickness. Their reset's a little bit tougher, but that's for another day. There's, I got all kinds of, yeah, we, I know we can do that all day long. Talk about more of the running stuff and to that point, so your day job is playing doctor, but you are also, you have another day job as well, which is in, it involves the location that you're in right now. So would you tell the humans about that? Yeah, so my, it, this is part of my job too. So I do a lot of sports med, running rehab, gait analysis, trying to get people to solve their plantar fasciosis, resolve their running injuries. And we have a store here called Two River Strads. We're at year nine now which is cool. So we were the first store, I, I think there's none other kind of popped up on the radar. So we were the first store that really opened as a true natural footwear store. Meaning when we opened was when you started your, your business and we started chatting because we had no shoes with elevated heels, narrow toe box, structured shoes. So all the shoes that we opened with worked functionally with a human foot. So some were more minimal than others. So when we opened, I think Vivo Barefoot was around, Vibram was just starting to get on a rage, Newton Running was around, Saucony made a shoe called the Canvara, New Balance made a shoe called the Minimus, yep. and that was it. That was the wall. That was it. And then Lems came along, they used to be called Stem, so that was like the first lifestyle shoe. Yep. And then, we, and then the sandals started coming along, Luna and you guys, Zero Shoes, so yeah, now it's all, the wall's full of multiple brands and... Well, Within that, brands like your spectrum, you got the boots and the lifestyle shoes and the sandals, yeah. but all built on the same principle. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I'm curious what your take is from the retail side, when you talk about the Canvara, which is gone, when you look at the Minimus, which has changed from what used to be a, a good minimalist shoe to not, what's been your, what have you seen from the retail side about how brands are dealing with the whole idea of true minimalism and how the general public is? 
Yeah, so I think every, everything, pendulums shift from one direction to another, and then they end up back in the middle where they should be. So when we opened our store, not everyone was convinced the world should be super minimal, and I wasn't either. A lot of people do need some protection, but everyone needs to strengthen their foot. So the Canvara had cushion, Newton had cushion. Some folks were dabbling in Vivo, Vivo Barefoots, which had a shoe called an Evo, which had no yep. cushion. Minimus had a little cushion. But you'd see where people are and what their goals were. We never put people coming out of a big, bulky Asics Tiger into a five-finger. That would be silly to do that. And I think that's where people had trouble. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, pa- I'm gonna, pa- I'm gonna pause there because I, because this is a conversation I've had with Irene Davis as well, and Irene actually will put someone um, in into a shoe like ours right away, except that she'll do yeah. it after they've done a bunch of strengthening and a bunch of other things first. Exactly, do it correctly. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And my argument again, I, in fact, I did a, an episode about this that the whole idea of transition shoes is just complete nonsense. It was made up by companies who weren't going to go to a true minimalist shoe, yeah. and they wanted something to sell. They wanted to capitalize on this idea, so they made up this concept of transition shoes. And from my experience just now with hundreds of thousands of people, if you do, you can make that switch directly, but you just need to build up slowly. And let's, I don't want to say intelligently, you just need to be paying attention rather than just, I'm going to put on a new shoe and away we go. This is the problem. In fact, this this is kind of begging the question that I asked you is that one of the things that I noticed is that some of the bigger brands, including Vibram, they positioned the whole idea of natural movement as just put on this new shoe, you'll be fine. Everything yeah, you, need tra- you need training, exactly. So right. what you're saying there is actually really important. So the people that, I, I, w- I would do exactly what, what you said. So the people that were broken, ran horribly, shin yeah. splints, stress fractures, I, I would get them to try to run completely barefoot on the street. Yep. Not a lot, 50 meters. That's the only way to really retrain the gait. But then say you had someone who came in who was an efficient runner already, wasn't hurt, was in a big bulky shoe and preferred a little cushion. Sure, they just pick what's comfortable. But if someone really had injury issues and wanted to fix those injury issues, yeah, you can't just put a transition shoe on and hope it all goes away. Yeah, they really need to. That's how I discovered it too. You know, run. you've seen me running. I've run barefoot on the streets and it teaches you something every time you go out because your feet give you messages. So And then you see, what does the person want to do? Not many people are truly willing to just, they're all type A, Stephen. They're like, okay, I want you to, I know you've had eight stress fractures in the last year. I want you to run 15 minute miles barefoot. Yeah. Slow is like, it makes them crazy. This this story, like you're crazy. Then they do it. Right. And then, oh my God, this works. It's funny. The story that I used to tell, I haven't told it in a long time. I'm just blanking. It's been so long that I'm blanking on, on the name of the woman. It's a couple here in Boulder and they're both Olympic distance runners. And when she had, I think two kids, maybe three kids. And then after having kids, like went back and became an Olympian again. And after, when she was pregnant, she was, some people like keep working out when they're pregnant. She just couldn't, she would just take the whole time mm-hmm. off. And after she uh, would have the baby, she would get back into training again. And the first month was just walking. And then the second month was walking interspersed with really slow, long distance, not even very long. And it would take nine to 10 months just to get back up to speed again. If this is what an Olympian does to get back up to speed, why do you think you can do it way better, faster, different? And people just think that that they can make these massive changes instantly. And and granted, there are a couple of people who do and they just ruin it for the rest of us. But but it is amazing that, that people are the, the lack of patience is fascinating. I've been doing it wrong for my whole life, but I should be able to figure this out instantly. It's like, hmm. Yeah, and we really try to teach patients similar to, to folks who need to lose weight. They need patience and do it correctly. 
But that was probably Kara Goucher if up there with Adam Goucher. She lives no, in it Florida. wasn't Kara. It wasn't Kara. Oh, it was. Um, all, all the Olympians live up there. I know. Dude, <laughs> dude, if, if I, when I go to the track. Ligaments too. After pregnancy, all the fascia is loosened. Right. Just that easy, slow jogging versus walking. You're training that spring again, but yeah. adding very low stress. So that adaptation. But then when they finally decide to dial it up, the fascia is ready to go and they won't get hurt. So that probably does take a year, I would guess, after after delivering a baby to get everything back to normal normal yeah. tension, like for fascia, because it's all detensioned. The so, interesting research experiment, like when is the fascia back to the point that it could take the stress that it did prior to pregnancy in the same way? That um, is I don't know. Going. And I wonder if it could be accelerated with something like prolotherapy or anything where you're just del- healthy diet, eat bone broth, stuff yeah. for your collagen. I don't yeah. know. Interesting. One of the questions in this, in the same vein, what was your experience and also what's your take? Let me try this in a different way. One of the things that really put a crimp in the whole idea of natural movement was of course, when there was the class action lawsuit filed against Vibram because they made an unfounded medical claim saying these things, wearing these will make your feet stronger, which there wasn't some explicit study that showed that, but there was enough dots you could connect where obviously if you're going to use your feet, they can get stronger. If yeah. you don't, then they get weaker. And there actually are studies now showing that, which is in- I know. There actually was then too. There was a study that came out years before Vibram on the Nike Free, which was about as minimalist as a pair of stilts. But regardless, it was more flexible than previous shoes. And the study showed that by wearing that shoe, you built intrinsic and extrinsic foot muscle strength compared to any, a regular shoe. And I think that's probably one yeah, it of was, It was an advertising error, not a... And unfortunately, they, they didn't lose. They just settled. They didn't well, lose. Exactly. No, yeah, they, they never said they did. They weren't wrong. They didn't lose. But the media took that... Correct. In a way that was completely opposite. And it was like a minuscule amount. I forgot what it was. It was $3.75 million after yeah. you know, about a year and a half. And so it was absurd. And my theory, and I talked about this in a previous That's episode. Nothing in a lawsuit for a major company. Well, yeah, the toning shoe, the claim that if you wear these toning shoes, it's going to make your butt look better. I think that case settled. Yeah, it was settled for $120 million. So whole different game. But regardless, I'm curious, obviously, I now now know what your take is on the case itself. But what did you see, again, since you have a retail-facing presence, what did you see as a result of that? And how how have you dealt with that? Because people still bring it up. Yeah, it didn't really affect our business, Stephen, because we, just as we were chatting, we just basically try to teach people how to run. And I could explain to people that, and I'm out here in West Virginia, so people aren't following the Google search minimalist blogs. They just come in and want to get in a shoe and they don't come in. What's nice about being here is I don't think I've ever had some, because we're not like in suburbia running culture where no one's come in and said, I've always worn Asics or I've always worn this. They, They just try on shoes. They don't have, they're not so brand wedded. Yeah. Yeah, And maybe, I don't know, someone said this, trust me, I'm a doctor or something. (laughs) I've seen that on people's shirts. And for some reason, our staff here, they're very well trained, highly educated staff. And and so they, we take time with people. We listen to them. We look at their feet. We show them where their problems are. They try shoes on and they don't like it. They can bring it back in 30 days. So I think that's how it worked. It didn't really affect us at all. Because I think what we were doing is no, is, was right, and it's no different now than it was nine years ago, because this is all just the basics. It's interesting. The, the, work the, the on your posture, work yeah. on your gait, slow down, don't train so hard. Oh, my God. I try to get runners to take one day off and do some strength training, and they act like I'm telling them I want to sell one of their children. 
Yeah, and I do my strength training, and we have kettlebells here in the store. Like, yeah, learn all that. Have you seen, did you, I made a video. I'm going to have to point you to my favorite new exercise device. I have, we have one here in the office. Yeah. It's called the K-Box. It's an eccentric flywheel device. Have you seen one of these? No. Oh, super cool. Would it be um, cool for my store? We're always looking uh, for cool stuff. Oh, it would be very cool in your store. We'll talk about that after we get off the, off okay. the show. Yeah, it's super cool in the store because it's, we'll get into that. That's a whole okay. other thing. If it fits in your backpack, you take uh, it. Not quite, but it, not fits, quite. it fits in the backseat of your car and gives you okay. all the resistance you could possibly need for all the exercises you would want oh, to man. do. I'm in. Let's it's, talk. They're, yeah, they're super cool. We'll talk. On to other things. So one of the other things that I know you do, rather than just asking you about this, and this is the teaser that I did at the beginning of the episode, you have done a bunch of work with, because, oh, so let's back up. Not only are you a doctor, but you have military credentials. Yeah, just retired after 29 years. Congratulations. Air Force doc. And, and I know that because your email has that built into it. One of the things that I know that has been a, a big concern slash mission of yours is to get people who are in the military for whom running is a big deal to do that safely, more effectively, more efficiently with fewer injuries. Can you chat about that? Yeah, actually, I just wrote a book. It came out last year called Run for Your Life, and that would explain the whole story. But yeah, it's it, injuries in the military, whether it's Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, the musculoskeletal injuries are huge, costing the taxpayers, you listening, billions and billions of dollars of direct cost of the care and lost duty days, early retirements, disability payments, and it's all self-inflicted, meaning if you go to combat and you get injured, that's the cost of doing business. But if we're supervising you being hurt, doing physical training, we call it PT, physical training, but most of these injuries are happening under supervision of cadre leaders, fitness trainers, so it's broken. And I, I went on a six-month assignment. They assigned me, you know, left my job for six months to dive into the fitness test, the failure rates, the injuries. And, you know, I, I came into that with some hypotheses and I learned a lot of new things because I wanted to just throw everything away that I thought was true and kind of look at people. I traveled 50 bases, but I describe it in the book, but it's all the basics of what we teach here. Slowing down, aerobic development, proper form. We're still working on the shoes and we're getting really close. I have a good colleague down at basic training. So now we're looking at getting a neutral shoe with little drop and you know, a little bit of cushion and lightweight. So we are close because the military still gives these 18 year old enlistees this big 15 ounce bulky trainer that's posted and you would hate it. I couldn't run a step in the damn thing. And we wonder why they hate to run. This is, so this is the thing that I was teasing at the beginning. I mean, you would think that given the literal and figurative cost of all of these injuries, that the military would be highly motivated to make a change for something that works. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw out a quick thing. I know that Irene Davis, who's a mutual friend of ours, who's a doctor at Harvard, yeah. Irene was trying, oh, she's great. Irene was <clears throat> trying to get funding for a study through the military about to see if switching to minimalist footwear would be helpful and they wouldn't give her grant money. It's like, why wouldn't you want to spend a couple of dollars to find out something that could be better for people and they didn't do it? So again, you would think that they would be highly motivated to find better solutions, but that doesn't seem to be the case. You would think. This is how it is really, I think, in any institution, whether it's in healthcare, large hospital systems, the DOD, the US military, is changing institutions is very difficult. What does it take for an institution to change? I think that's the unanswered question. So if you take million army troops that 
do this way and this is the way it's always done for that kind of big <laughs> it's like turning a school of fish right it's slow so, change so you and i are like why didn't this happen yesterday it's crazy look at the data all these people are getting hurt but you're talking about changing an entire culture yeah it's, so <laughs> i know yeah i'm like that <laughs> But it's cool because now, like that, we have made change in basic training. We just the, the footwear is the last domino to fall, so they slow down dynamic warm up. We teach running form, like all the stuff that you and I are teaching. Outside of we don't have the right shoe there yet, but man, right. it's gonna this that'll be the holy grail. We get the shoe, and then we start to look at data. And then okay, what are we doing? Is this helping? Because you got to get data too. But yeah, people are listening. It's just not as fast as you would think. That's why it's working at the small hospitals nice because. We got sugar drinks out of my hospital. It's a 24-bed hospital. But if I walked into a 3,000-bed hospital and wanted to do that, they'd throw me under the bus. I'd be like taking away their human rights or something. It's all wisdom of the crowds and the people that help right. change. It's interesting. One of the things that I found, and I'm curious if you've had the same experience, is the one place where I've had no resistance. And what I mean is that I just keep hearing from this particular group of people over and over about how they made the switch to minimalist footwear. And even our original do-it-yourself sandal kit is special forces. Yeah, All Those guys are like, they can do whatever they want. They recognize it. And I'm amazed that it hasn't just, mm-hmm. I'm amazed that it hasn't just filtered down from them given their experience. A little bit, but you have to look at their, those folks and I've worked with them with running clinics. So they're elite athletes, perfect yeah. form, perfect strength, perfect biomechanics. They could deadlift you and I, and your wife. Dude I, dude, I could deadlift you and I and my wife. Okay, I can't, but they would, okay, think of the Jeff Vernon. Okay, so you've met Jeff. <laughs> oh, that's a whole different story. Jeff, for people who don't know, Jeff Vernon is a friend of ours from True Form Running. They make this awesome, awesome. curved, non-motorized treadmill, and Jeff is a beast. 280 of pure muscle. Yeah. With you and I stuck. Yeah, so these guys move perfectly. So they move perfectly. So the Vibram Five Finger or whatever type, and that Seal Star, there was that one picture of the, I think it was a seal or some other special ops guy jumping out of the helicopter with his dog in the five finger. Oh, yeah. Maybe we could find that one and post it because they're in and out of water. So that shoe, the original KSO was like the rock star shoe for those guys because all they do is they ask the person who has survived X number of missions. Hey dude, how do you do that? What, why, why are you wearing those five finger things? He explains it simply. They make my feet feel good. I can run through water and not get shot. And, but look at, there was an article yesterday in the Military Times about the military now looking at low-carb diets. So which group of the military do you think have been on low-carb paleo type of diets since before the word paleo even existed? Oh, the Special Forces guys, because that's how it, it works, right? So they just ask the cadre, the guy who's the senior instructor now, you know, who has been on X number of missions. And it was fun talking to those guys like seven or eight years ago on this topic because you just what do you guys eat when they drop you out of a plane and you got to go mark a target and come back when maybe that's two weeks later when they carry like nuts and jerky and things like that they didn't understand that that's like a low carb keto thing it's like yeah they just needed the most calories in the smallest amount of space yeah yeah and they did they didn't understand that ketones gave you mental clarity they just knew that it worked for them and they weren't hungry or hangry when they have to have like yeah they have to have this immense attention and clarity to, but yeah it works for them but now they're looking jeff bullock is studying that but that's not a study they're just individual but everything is learned from human experience and science matches up it's just physiology but they're again they're different animals if i took an 18 year old 
new recruit, how do you think those guys move? Do they move like a seal or do they move like your average high school kid who's worn big bulky shoes? They run horribly. So those folks need to be trained. So, right. so for them, that's, and it's hard to train a thousand people at a time in running form. It's, so what they are the have, they have 12 true form runners now at Air Force basic training, which okay. is really cool. Like well, so, so each division will run on the true form. So when you're working with them or when you're working with people in your store, and uh, I'm going to ask you to modify this slightly for people who are watching slash listening, what do you teach people or how do you teach them to make the gait adjustments that are basically <clears throat> back to what's natural? Yeah. What people have actually done is gone from natural to something unnatural and now they're, un they're unlearning, relearning. So what's the process that you do for that? actually pretty damn easy not, not to be an advertisement here for true form i'm not funded by them in any way we put we give people some cues we teach them posture we teach them arm position we teach them rhythm just the basics so let's pause there so talk about what when you say teach them posture and teach them arm position say more about what that is specifically yeah so running so think of if you had a really tall like one of those really long foam rollers like what the 36 inch foam rollers if you throw it down to the ground it's going to ping bounce back up nicely if it's all bent and crumpy you throw it down to the ground it just it doesn't come back or a super ball a good posture is going to be the body's in alignment starting at the feet jumping rope. So think of if you were to jump rope as effortlessly as possible, but you don't want to burn calories jumping rope. Just imagine you had to jump rope for two hours. What's the most efficient position? And you'll find it that it's just tall. And a lot of people are in that back seat because they've been wearing heels. So they're in that kind of shoulder back position. So we teach them to compensate a little bit forward, which feels weird, but they have to feel that. So teach them the basics of posture. Rhythm is just the spring, right? So we get them jumping rope. Now, if their feet are all jacked up and the toes are caved in and the arches are collapsed and they try to, they hit the ground like here, right? They're right. like that. Okay, let's get your foot in a better position. Let's widen out your toes, short foot posture. Now spring. Okay, now what has that feel? So that's the rhythm. Arm position's pretty easy. We even use this little kind of sling. It's like a little yolk that kind of attaches your thumb almost right to your chest. So as soon as your arm flies too far in front, and I'm sprinting it probably you need to because you're generating power. Actually, no. If you look at no, sprinters. You keep your hands um, tight uh, sprinting. Like if, tight you, if you look at sprinters, the final hand position is, they call it cheek to cheek. And it's literally. Okay, okay, same, so okay, same thing. So what you're, it's very similar. You're actually, it's a little different because with distance running, it's similar in where your elbows are. Yeah. Because of the amount of force that you're generating when you're sprinting, your elbows don't, you don't want your elbows coming too far forward, but your hands are basically coming up here yeah, more yeah. rather than going more. Yeah. Yeah. We're just trying to teach people to, to, Irene David puts it great, land soft and land stable. So you want to soften the landing, but you have to be stable. So we get them to get that body position, but then we put them on the true form runner. And for those, we could link to it, but uh, it's a little slightly curved treadmill. It doesn't have a motor, so you have to make it go. So if you overstride, think about like you got a little curved treadmill, Fred Flintstone style, you have to make it work. If you're super tight in the hips or you're overstriding, it just comes to a stop. You can't right. make it work. So then we just like, maybe you're going to a driving range or you can't watch a video and go hit the ball. You got to go like slow and practice and get, you got to feel it yourself. So we start people super slow, make a few adjustments and they usually, whoa, I, they'll find it. You get out of the way. Don't overcoach them. Give them a few cues, get them to try to fire their glutes, open their hips. So if they can't make it move, use like the little sled drill where you attach a bungee to their waist and get them to sprinting drill, right? Drive away. 
So that, okay, you feel that using the glutes or if they're super tight in the hips, we'll have them do some mountain climbers. Now get back on the true form. You're trying a few little tweaks. So I'm going to pause there and just highlight something. So what you're just talking about with mountain climbers and the sprinting drill, for people who are listening slash watching, or back to the whole idea of firing your glutes, it's an amazing thing. The biggest, one of the biggest muscles in your body is your glutes and then your hamstrings. Your lats are also there too, but ignore those for a moment. These are things called prime movers. They are the things designed to make you move. And from human for many reasons, it's the one set of muscles that people don't seem to use when they try to run or walk even. And so just to, and it's not that you can't, it's just that you've so turned it off enough and you need to feel that again to, to have that sense of, oh, that's what it means to use these things. And so these, both of these drills, the only way you can move forward, if you're having some resistance, you have to lean forward and you have to push out of the back. Because if you put your foot too far in front of your body, you can't pull hard yeah, enough. Yeah, these muscles aren't designed for pulling. pulling tire. We even yeah. have a little tire with a, like a little strap, like a webbing strap. You know, and that's fun. Just put it out on the curb and kids yeah, can. No, no. Run. You just made me think of something. The last time you and I saw each other at the running event, this trade show for running shoe stores, there was a guy opposite me who had a, a tire to drag. And he had oh, some, really? Yeah, this elastic thing that made it so it didn't bounce too much. And I watched all these distance runners who like could barely pull the thing. And so then I had him give me the heaviest tire that he had. And I'm a sprinter. And it's like, wing. And just yeah, he could sit in the tire and you would still pull. <laughs> but it was, but again, it was just because for sprinting, you have to use your glutes and your hamstrings. There's no other way. But there's a lot of people who are distance runners who are, they would call themselves accomplished runners. They found a way to move. Yeah, they compensated. They've totally compensated. And they're they not. Another gear. These people have another gear they could get so much better yeah agreed if they wanted to i mean it's people come into the running store just wanting to get healthy get off medications they're not really they could care less about using their glutes in their 5k time but then another group actually wants to get well and, and right. compete and win so you i just want everyone not to get hurt and learn how to and when people run correctly it's more fun it's wow this is fun in terms of not getting hurt as well, it's another reason to actually learn to use your glutes since that's going to, oops, that'll support your lower back. And so yeah. for people who are having, having back injuries, actually using your body correctly can help with that as well. These things work if you let them work. They work. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So people should just check out. I think the Trueform Runner now has a model that's a little less expensive. It's the same kind of quality, but it's a little more light that you could have for the home Trueform Runner. Yeah, Several people purchase them for home through. Yeah, I was actually talking to Jeff about that just the other day. In fact, I'm trying to get him to give me one. So, I, uh, but yeah, it's it's a great device, and it is one of those things you get on it. And if you're not putting your body and your feet in the right place, it just it clearly feels wrong. And then there's when you get in get things aligned, it just it suddenly gets easier. It just feels more fun. Yeah, really like, great. And go outside. I think, gosh, if everyone had something like that who was having issues. Run for three to five minutes on the true form, just like you're going to a driving range, get the seven iron blade and just get your swing dialed in yep. and then pull out the big Bertha. So like just warm up on it, get the rhythm. And then most people, I prefer being outside, then go outside. But it's a good thing to do that with too. There's a, a guy... There's a guy that we, I talked to a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine here in town named David Clark, who's a crazy, amazing ultra runner. And he did a 48 hour run on a treadmill. And it was just on a regular treadmill. I, I can't remember. I think we talked about true forms and I know he's using them and loves them, but I, I wonder what it would have been like if he had done that. Uh, it would be hard. It's a little more work. It on the more effort. Yeah. But that's part of it, right? You, you can actually get a lot of work without a lot of load. So like say you really wanted to do some strength running without loading, 
and there's a guy in South Carolina actually got some data on it. So the faster you go with that, yeah, you've got it. You use a lot of metabolic equivalents, but the load on your joints compared to going to the track and running 200 meter repeats, far less. It's also, like you said, since you're the one moving the treadmill, even with perfect form, it's not just gravity making it move. You're having to use your glutes and your hamstrings. And the first time I was on one of those, I got off and man, my whole posterior chain, the whole from my calves through my hamstrings through my butt, it was just on Very fire. Yeah. Well, yeah. If, he, if he doesn't send me one a free treadmill after this contest, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. May send you a little demo there for your studio or something. Yeah. We're, well, we're doing a little renovation, so we're going to have some rooms so and we can get people on things like that. It's, uh, we're really excited about that. Anything else you want to add? Some shoes. Dude, he's already got five pairs of my shoes. Okay. So that's the easy part. Um, anything or something else? crazy big like that. He's you know, we'll think of something. Anything else that you can think of in terms of just the like tips and tricks for getting started with really starting to understand and experience natural movement? Yeah. So the other thing, if you're not afraid to do it, and I don't think anyone should be. So we've got this beautiful, smooth sidewalk right in front of the store. They just did a whole streetscape thing. It's part of the reason we moved our store here from our past location. And that, like today is a beautiful day. Take your shoes completely off. And we do a lot of little run clinics and just go run softly down the sidewalk in your bare feet. And it's, people start smiling. It's, wow, this is cool. It just shows them that they can land painlessly in their bare feet, but they go like super slow. Yeah. So it teaches them like two lessons, you know, for one, it's okay to do this just down to the curb and back. Yep. And super soft. And it's super fun. You hit my favorite thing. I, I, I often say you can spot a barefoot runner from a mile away because they're smiling. Yeah, yeah. If they have a grimace on their, if someone has a stress fracture, wouldn't make them do it. But most people who are just learning how to run again, a little plantar fasciosis, they can do that. I want to come back to plantar fasciosis in a second, but before I do that, the whole idea of running and landing softly. Irene and I talked about this. Uh, I've seen people do something that I never imagined they would do. They have they they've read or heard somewhere that you're supposed to land on your forefoot. So the thing that they figure out about how to land softly while landing on their forefoot is still reaching their foot way out in front of their body and pointing their toes and like gently getting their foot down, but then pulling the ground underneath them. I'm assuming you see the same thing, and I'm curious what you do. Yeah, to I think correct people them. just will learn. They just need to practice. Their body will teach them. So certainly, if you had a, even a minimal shoe on, you could stab into the ground really hard right. while moving forward and create a lot of friction. And friction's bad, but if you had a shoe on, like everyone who has wear patterns on their shoes are creating friction. But if you take your shoe off, and say you're, imagine we're going like 10 minutes a mile or something and you're going forward at 10 minutes a mile and you stab your foot into the ground going forward, you're gonna leave some skin on the pavement. But if you gently just let that foot land softly and just get a little bit of push back, you're bringing it back at the speed you're going forward. But you can't overthink this, you have to feel it. Your body will naturally just let your foot do the right thing. But you can't, you just have to go do it, but start like really slow. Yeah. Really, really slow. Yeah. I say 20 seconds, 30 seconds tops. Yeah. And they feel it and let the heel come down. Don't prance. Just let the heel come down. Whether you touch gently and roll from the heel or touch gently on the forefoot and then your heel touches. I don't think there's any one place. The best runners have the most variability when they film them through races. So they're, well, I'm going to, I'm going to argue that one because there is variability, but there's two factors that one is that a lot of these runners are training in a higher heeled padded shoe and then racing in a racing flat. So they've already developed a certain movement pattern. And the other thing is just when you look at video analysis, it's very deceptive. 
because watching where someone lands on video is very different than what happens on a yeah. force plate where you see where they're actually applying force. Where they're the loading, yeah, what part of exactly. but I think this is, I don't know, I've read stuff, you've read stuff, and it's probably, it depends, is the, always the answer. <laughs> but if you watch like the elite pack at the Boston Marathon, for example, so like right. at mile seven, Tom Machado had some amazing video. Yeah, they're touching and they're touching pretty you know, on their heel and they're rolling forward because at mile seven, they're just trying to cruise along and, and try to conserve energy and they're just going to probably mix it up. And I kind of do the same in marathon races, going down a hill, you modify a little bit. and Absolutely, up downhill, totally different thing. Yeah, and so it's hard to know when you see that film, is it completely flat, flat? But what is about a mile to go or a half mile to go, those who are still in the money, the rest of them are done. Yeah. Those in the money, then they get on the ball of their foot, just like the last lap of the track. So not all of them, but most of them would when you see it. That's like the last lap of a 10,000 meter race because then they're like all in at that point. Right. And they could care less if they trash their fascia because they're applying so much power because it's half mile from the finish. You just raised another point that I've also commented on, which is people love to use elite athletes as the example for, hey, here's what you should do. But these are often people who are just trying to find the best way to make a living, frankly, to win a race. And they don't have a lot of concern for, will I be able to do this when I'm 40 or 50 or 60? And the other thing is when someone says, someone's this particular marathon or does the following. And I say, I don't want to be the one to break the news to you, but you're not a 105 pound Kenyan. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. We're talking about the elites. For the average runner, I don't have them focus that much on what part of their foot hits the ground. That's why I like the true form. I just want them to develop a movement pattern that's correct, that's soft. You can't pound into the motorless treadmill, it stops. Most people prefer a little bit of cushion because that's like they're making a couple mm, changes and coming out of heels. Actually, I'm making growling noises, but it's not, uh, but uh, just for the fun of it. There's, how do I want to put this? Yeah, uh, there's cushioning and there's cushioning, let's say it that way. And there's also what feels good when you're just standing there versus what feels good when you're running or what affects your running and what doesn't affect your running. And, and these things are, are all very different. And there's been a lot of confusion, I would argue, about uh, what, what's good. When I watch people go into a store and they put something on their feet and they go, I like all the cushion that feels really good. It's yeah, they have to run in it. But yeah, so it. too soft is a bad thing when we teach them that. A Tempur-Pedic mattress feels great. Yeah, you don't want yeah. to do push-ups on it. Same thing about running. They actually have people stand on an Eric's pad, which is super soft, and they're like, oh, this feels good, but how would that feel at mid-stance? Yeah, it doesn't work. The Eric's yeah. pad, for those listening, is like a PT pad. When you're doing ankle rehab, it's like it a soft foam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it teaches you to train your body to deal with instability, which is not what you want when you run. You want to land on stable surfaces. Yeah, the whole instability training thing is another one that makes me crazy. It's, hey, you're training to be unstable. So no, actually, you can get stronger if you train stable because yeah, then you can run on some trail forward. and that'll teach you. <laughs> yeah, Honestly, exactly. but this may be, maybe this is good for business, Stephen. But to be honest, but most people don't want to buy two pair of shoes. I don't know why they go buy a racing bike, a training bike. They all buy all this other crap. Shoes are inexpensive and like yours last 5,000 miles. But I think if everyone got like a true minimal sandal mm -hmm. or shoe, and something that they might take on the trail and mix yeah. it up. And then yeah. go out, it's a recovery day, go out and it's not on a big Sharpie trail, go out and run in sandals or run barefoot super slow. And then the next day you wanna load it up a little bit and you just wanna, I mean, no kidding, you wanna pound the ground a little bit, put on something with a little bit of cushion, whatever it's, your preference is. This, this is something Irene says as well. It would help them. 
Irene says, look, if you're going to be an overstriding heel striking runner, get some cushioning under your heel. I don't recommend that you stay that way, but if that's what you're going to do, then do sure. it. Yeah. yeah then have you know, and Golden Harper, I like how he explains it. But you've got three feet of spring, which is pretty much your hip down to your arch or an inch of cushion. Right. What do well, you want to utilize? Yeah. My version of that, I say, um, so which do you think is going to be more effective? A piece of foam that starts breaking down immediately upon use that is basically tuned to a particular weight and speed of which you are neither, or an almost instantly, infinitely adjusting spring-like mechanism that evolved over a very long time to handle pretty much anything you could throw at it. The latter. Yeah. Um, I'm in four. I'm 52, and if I got a What's that? I know you're uh, shit, but I'm a distance guy, so I've got like 120,000 miles on my legs, or even yeah, more. Than I'm that. a sprinter. I've got 120,000 tons of force on my legs. Yeah, hell yeah, it's probably pretty equal when we <laughs> added up because you put nine G's on your frame. <laughs> How many steps are 100 meters for an elite athlete for Olympian 41 to 43? For me, I think I, <coughs> sorry about that. Sneeze. I think I was somewhere on 48 the last time I checked, but I'm not steps. sure. And that doesn't seem like much, five or six steps, but it's everything. Yeah, it's high intensity plyometrics, you know, single bound for 10 steps, one light bound. Most people would trash themselves. It's, it's completely insane, but I, I can't think of any, doing anything else. Um, so backing up to your comment about plantar fasciosis, which most people think of as plantar fasciitis. So would you do me two favors and talk about why you say osis and not itis? And also what from a natural movement perspective is the way that you talk to people who come in presenting those symptoms with, for whatever they're going to do to deal with that? Yeah, so itis, just going into medical terminology, means a true inflammatory condition. And most of those things are going to either be infectious or autoimmune. For example, something like rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune attack. You've got hot, red, swollen joints. There's actually active damage going on. So an osis is more a degenerative hit and repair type of process. So most back disease is degenerative. So there are occasional things like discitis, which are infections or things like that. But so most plantar fasciosis is degeneration, thousands and thousands of steps and micro tears in the plantar fascia, and it hurts. The repair process becomes dysfunctional, but there's no active attack on it by your own body's immune system or infection. So it's an osis. Doesn't sound sexy. Doesn't sound, uh, doesn't sound druggable, right? Because the, the industry wants you to think it's an itis, which means there's, which is druggable by an anti-inflammatory. Now, the truth about those are they will inhibit the body's repair process. The body has this innate repair process. Like you say, how many years have we evolved? More of that this shit than I have. <laughs> how many hundreds of lives? That's all I got. I don't know how many zeros of years. Okay, we've evolved yeah, with a pretty a damn good repair to a lot. You cannot treat a degenerative injury. You can't treat it to make it repair faster. You can only support what's going on and reteach it while your body repairs itself. So people think you can treat these injuries, like you take something, you inject something, put some magic widget, and it's going to heal faster. That's absolutely not true. Ice it, hot tubs, nothing will make it heal faster. That's just the way it is. Drugs will make it heal slower, and they have their own list of side effects. So when I was in college, to share a story, so we all were broken. You know, I was running in college, and we took all these anti-inflammatories and aspirins, and I was, it was like my freshman year, and I'm wondering, like, you know, behind you was a white wall. And uh, my roommate looked at me one night. He says, you're looking kind of pale. Are you okay? And I said, I don't know. I feel like shit. I'm like, can't keep up in practice anymore, and I got this stomach ache. I don't know what it is. You know, I just felt like shit. But, you know, you're a knucklehead. 
18-year-old in college, and he calls his dad, who's a pharmacist. He says, yeah, my roommate doesn't look too good. He looks pale. And his dad says, is he taking any medicine? And he asked me, and I'm like, I'm not taking any medicine, but they give me this stuff at the trainer's room. And asked me what it was, and it was like some kind of ibuprofen-y thing. And he said, he better go down to student health. And I went down there, my hemoglobin was six, which is a third. So I'm like running to, I'm going to practice with half to a third of my blood volume. But at least I was like, oh, at least I'm not like psycho or something. Right, right. Well, that was my last. And then they did the, the upper GI, you swallow the chalk. And I had like hundreds of holes in my stomach and duodenum. Oh, man. And that was a rough year. I lost all the iron. And yeah, it took a while to get back to just feeling well again. You've lost, because it took a while to lose all that blood. But yeah, I, mean, I see the hospital pay, but that's another. Just don't take ibuprofen if you're listening. And if you're taking ibuprofen for a running injury, don't <laughs> repeat that. If you're taking ibuprofen for a running injury, stop right now. It, it, it reminds me I, when I lived in Manhattan from 1993 to 83 to 93, roughly. And I lived right around the corner from a health food store and I was in there every day. And there was these two, I now say young guys, they were in their thirties. They were older than I was who ran this health food store. And one day I'm checking out and they had uh, some packet of some supplemental thing uh, sitting on the counter by the register. And I was looking at the ingredients, more energy, more vitality, more whatever. And I'm checking it out. And one of them slaps it out of my hand. And the other looks at me and goes, you don't need that. You need a nap. <laughs> and it's the same thing with, for runners. What can I take for this? Time off. I'm off and sleep. Yeah. Sleep is yeah. powerful. You need yeah. to rest a little bit. So when people have a, a fasciosis, and anyway, I, I did a thing about plantar fasciosis. And and I did the Share the ebook out. I, we did in, in a previous podcast, but there's a, a story that I tell of a guy who said, I've had plantar fasciitis for 20 years. Went, you can't have an inflammation for 20 years. That doesn't mm -hmm. work that way. So what do you say to people or what do you do with people when they come in presenting uh, plantar fasciosis? Jesus, osis symptoms. Say that 10 times. Yes, but you look at their feet. That's the victim. And But what's going on? If they have, we use a ton of correct toes because if you have a pallets valgus, which is the big toe pointing in, when you, yeah, your foot's just going to roll in and that puts a lot of sheer stress on the tib posterior and which is the muscle that acts as a sling on the inside of your ankle. So years and years of constant stress. So that muscle is going to become dysfunctional. So when that muscle is not firing correctly because it's overstretched and overstressed, the plantar fascia is going to take the load. Um, so trying to get them into a neutral foot posture and aware of that. We use an insole. I love this uh, insole called Barefoot Science. Mm. And it's not a support, but what it, I don't know, I think you've seen those. It's I a got, little, yeah. oh my God, they're magic. They're like little, it's, a, it's like a three-quarter insole, but it has a little pod that sits under your arch, almost like a metatarsal pad. But it just cues you when you're letting your foot collapse down to just help you just reshape and lift your foot. So it's teaching you to, to use a short foot posture when you're walking and get that foot more neutral. So over weeks, they actually add a little more of that pod, which again, doesn't support the foot with an external. No, it's actually doing the opposite. It's poking. It's doing the opposite. It's teaching the muscles to support the foot. But they ultimately walk their way out of plantar fasciosis. And I don't have a randomized trial of this, but I could give an experience. I think we've probably sent out a couple thousand pair of correct toes and probably at least a thousand pairs of these barefoot science insoles for plantar fasciosis. And people have 30 days to bring them back if it's not working. So we say, try this 30 days. If it's not working for you, bring it back. And they know where I live. It's a small town. My email is public. You know, so I've not yet seen you down. a single one of those insoles ever come back. And people come in and they're like, oh my God. Thank you. My plantar fasciosis is gone. 
For someone who to get them in a functional wide toe box shoe, so you're looking at just fixing the foot and all the little widgets. So if you have a stand-up desk and get some kind of roller, just golf ball. So some of that stuff's pretty effective too, just to try to break up all that disjointed fascia and restructure it. So for someone who, who wants to try and start doing something today, other than what you just said of standing up and getting a golf ball under your foot, for example, either they're not going to order some other gadget like Barefoot Science. I don't mean to use the word gadget in a derogatory fashion, but if they want to start doing something today, either just around their house, what else would you recommend? I think they have to look at their own foot and have some awareness. If they have a collapsed foot, then they're going to have to train their foot to be in a more neutral position. So it really varies, I think, person to person because what they could have a tight heel cord. So we see a lot of people, saw someone in here yesterday who was having plantar fasciosis, trying to get down into a deep squat. She couldn't even get close because her Achilles calf were so tight. So if that's super tight, if you can't get down into a deep squat and you want to go run hard, I think you're going to be a setup for plantar fascia or Achilles. You'd go run easy, but if you try to load it up a bit more, you're gay too. So not, not that you're preaching to the choir, but um, again, I did an episode about plantar fasciitis and you've said the same thing I said. But to that point, in fact, if people find that episode, some of the references that we're making, I pointed to there. So that'd be useful. What do you, how do I want to put this? One of the things that you and I have talked about over the years is trying to get together, or put together some sort of organization, an umbrella organization that would be able to communicate the real value of natural movement. We're up against a lot of propaganda, a lot of marketing from companies that are worth billions and billions of dollars who have a vested interest in not letting people think that natural movement is even possible. It's my way of putting it. What do you see as the way that we can turn this screamingly obvious idea that your body works if you let it into common wisdom. I'm, I'm looking at our new uh, Dalai Lama, right? I'm staring right at you. <laughs> Here you go. You're the dude. So you, know, you and Ray McClanahan, and I just think you guys have such an amazing fund of knowledge and communication. So Ray McClanahan has developed Correct Toes, Irene Davis, and to be able to communicate to people like you, you videos and social media education courses. I teach CME courses, which are continuing medical education. Ray has now a series of seminars geared to healthcare professionals. And it's cool. So I get invited now to podiatry meetings to talk about this. When I used to be a foil, they bring yeah. me in as someone to throw things at just to have an interesting argument. <laughs> but it's nice. You just present the science in a humble way. And I can't do that humble way thing. I can't do that very well. Yeah, you're, you're doing people's faces. But you could tone it down if you had to go speak public. In front not, of a, not a lot. Not, not yeah. very much. Hold right, on. So maybe Hold you're on. not the guy. Wait, last year at the American College of Sports Medicine, I was on this panel discussion against some guys from Brooks, and Adidas is oh, one beautiful. of the sponsors. Okay, I listened to that one. Yeah. Suffice it to say, I was not invited back. <laughs> really? And Tony was on there, too. Tony's yeah. a little more diplomatic. But he's yes, another he, really good spokesperson. No, no Tony, Tony, this is Tony Post from Tobi Athletic. I'm formerly the CEO of Vibram. And no, Tony is definitely more diplomatic. And if you watch the video of the two of us, and for, if you're listening, you can find it at zeroshoes.com slash ACSM. That's Amazon Mary at the end. You'll see there's times- How did they let you in in the first place? I'm surprised. I, I know. But there's times where I say something or do something and you, you can see Tony, he knows that what I'm saying is true, but the way I'm saying it just he, makes him very- He's cringing. He's, no, 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 just you have to like be respectful. Uh, yeah, say, well, this is how know. I see it. Well, you may be right, but yeah, I, you always have yeah. to. I, I, I can only do that for a certain amount of time, and then I just lose the ability. Uh, yeah. You lose it. Yeah. <laughs> you need I mean, folks like you in the game to make it fun and disruptive, and then Tony's a little more diplomatic. 
He's a lot more diplomatic. He basically, the, thing, the difference between me and Tony is Tony has way more friends in the footwear industry than I have. So he's trying not to upset his friends. I don't know these people. And yeah, it's, and even more than that, to, to not be glib about it, there's ways of being diplomatic and there's times where I can do that. But it also just, frankly, infuriates me. I don't like it when people make money by lying to other people. I don't like it when people are doing things that they know are not good. I know, I'm not going to mention names. I know the CEOs of a couple of footwear brands who know that what we're talking about is true and will never do it. And I find that morally reprehensible and I'm going to call it out. And again, I'm not mentioning a name now because I would only do it with that person in front of me so they could defend themselves. Yeah. But I, I find it completely unacceptable. You see the same thing in the nutrition space. People won't join you on public debate, but they'll on internet say things that you're not saying. And, but yeah. it's, it is what it is. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, I'd, I'd like to have the, I, I want to be part of the conversation and it's fun. The thing about being part of the conversation is what we're talking about is I'll say it in the most entertaining way I can. It's the truth. And so it, you become really invincible when your back is against the wall is true versus something that's just a theory or philosophy or something that's really easy to disprove. And then you just watch people and see how they respond to it. And, and I understand why they don't respond well. I just don't think that's appropriate. Well, I got a hard stop at about four. So I've got to do the same. Let's use that as our way out of here. Mark, awesome. first of all, thank you so much. Secondly, if people want to get in touch with you and for any reason, obviously Two Rivers Treads, and it's tworiverstreads.com, I'm assuming. Yeah, and my book, Run For Your Life, the website you. is runforyourlifebook.com, and we've had a lot of videos of all the things we talked about. We've in fact, in fact there's, there's on the shoes and the foot. In fact, people ask about what does it look like to run barefoot well, and one of the things that I often do is point to videos of you running barefoot because you've got impeccable form, and you're actually running at speed barefoot, which most people don't think is even possible. And I don't like to point to videos of me because they think it's all blah, 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 but to find other people who are doing this successfully is important. So I want to um, thank you for everything that you have done in our creating a movement. Got movement. my Prios here so that I can get away with in West Virginia. I can wear those to work, and they look like casual work shoes. Yeah, dude, again, wait till you see the stuff the for boots, spring of 20. You know, the, the boots for the wintertime are, are awesome. But oh, we, sandals, just, I wore your JFK 50 mile. I wore the sandals. Thank you. Know, you thank you. Got right on yeah, no, we, we, I can't tell you how much we, we appreciate your support. And uh, find Mark, find his book. It's all amazing information. The videos are spectacular. So I want to thank you all again for being yeah, part you. of this conversation and the Movement thank Movement congrats. podcast. Again, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com where you can find all the places that you can find us, where you can like and share and subscribe and review and comment. If you have any questions or if you want to suggest anything for the show, just send an email to move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And of course, uh, as I love to say, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. And as always, live life feet first.